creating psychological safety is 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 the number one kind of priority uh, of leaders in today's world so what does it mean to create psychological safety how do you it's not being nice it's not sugarcoating conflict is an opportunity for connection when you go about it with curiosity this is brand story podcast featuring in-depth conversations with leaders, marketers, and brand storytellers about their professional journey and the impact they're making on the world around them. Welcome to the Brand Story Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Gilman, and my guest today is Dahlia Feldheim. Dahlia is currently the founder of Flow Leadership Consultancy, a business focused on brand building, diversity, inclusion, and happiness in the workplace. And Dahlia worked at Procter & Gamble for over 17 years, and there she led so many memorable advertising campaigns, including the iconic Always Like a Girl in 2014, which won 14 awards at Cannes and was listed on the Forbes 2020 10 Most Influential Campaigns of the Century. Hi, Dahlia. Welcome to the podcast. Lovely to be here. Thank you. I'm excited to talk to you about your journey and how you got where you are today and, and your wonderful new book. I have a copy right here. I'm excited. To, I'm very excited to read it. Um, I've started, but I haven't gotten that far yet, but I'm really enjoying it so far. When you came up with the Like a Girl campaign, what was the goal of the campaign for you? Because that was a very groundbreaking campaign. Yeah, and I, I don't like to take credit for it because it's really the agency that came up with, uh, you know, how it goes. We gave a brief. We were very clear that, you know, that was kind of a revelation when I was doing work in India among underprivileged girls that we can talk about later. It was very clear for me that personally, I'm not in the business of selling pads. I'm in the business of women empowerment because I see what, you know, confidence can do for a young girl. And that led us to this global brief. And I remember when the agency first presented us, you know, we were all in tears because, I mean, I felt 17 years, that is exactly what I was working for. So, you know, our goal was the commercial. And uh, for those who don't uh, remember it, basically, we ask a young girl what it means to run like a girl. And she says, what do you mean? It means run as fast as you can. Right. But some somehow things change during puberty and suddenly it becomes an insult. And you know, our goal was that commercial was to change the meaning of words and reclaim that phrase to mean simply be proud to be who you are. And I am just over the moon, you know, as of course, as a one of the marketing directors involved in that was the business results and, the, you know, the um, uh, Forbes recognized it as the most uh, 10 most uh, influential campaigns. But I can tell you as a mom of three, and I say that also in, you know, when my youngest daughter came back from school, called me from school, she was 12 at the time, all excited. It's like, mom, they're showing you ad in social studies. And I think, uh, you know, every time I talk about it, uh, you know, women say, oh, I remember that. Every time I talk about women empowerment, I bring the ad, you know. So, yeah, more than a commercial, it really became an icon for women empowerment. And that's kind of why I decided to to call my book there to lead like a girl as a homage for that campaign. Yeah. And I think, you know, having your daughter come home and tell you that it's being taught in social studies, that might be the best award of all or the best accolade. Completely. That's so meaningful. Um you know, you, I've heard you speak, and I was at your at your virtual book launch, and I really enjoyed it. And, you know, your journey to get to the Dare to Lead Like a Girl um, book is very personal. It also has a lot to do with some of the qualities that, that, you know, I think haven't been classically valued in leaders, passion and empathy. And so can you talk a little bit about your journey, about how you got from, 
you know, the red thread of this idea to where you are today? Well, I mean, I think um, my story, I remember actually when I told it for the first time in this conference, uh, Tal Ben-Shachar, who kind of became, he's Harvard's guru for positive psychology, and he was in the audience, and he came to me after and he's like, Dalia, you need to speak on TED and you need to write a book. And I remember literally I was kind of me. My stories are any girl next door. And he, he said, well, that's why they're so relevant. But um, so for me, I started off kind of uh, working with Procter & Gamble, as you mentioned, uh, for 17 years. And then I moved to another company. And I, the story kind of that I guess led me to or drove me to write the book is the story of the contrast, right? And you know, one that kind of stuck in my head is um, very early on in my career, maybe four months into the role, I was doing a big launch uh, um, of panty liners, actually. And, you know, my product got stuck in customs and I was in the general manager's office trying to kind of understand what went on. And, you know, I remember I was just so angry and so frustrated, you know, when you work really hard for something and you know, something external happens. And when I get frustrated, I tear up and I'm sitting there and I'm tearing up and I'm in my general manager's office. How embarrassing. And, you know, I'm frantically trying to regain my composure. And, you know, he smiled at me and he offered me a box of tissue. And when I finally regained my composure, he said something that really stuck in my head. He said, you know, Dalia, don't you ever be embarrassed for crying in the office again? That's a sign of your passion. And passion is your superpower. That's wonderful. And that's amazing, right? And I can tell you, you know, 17 years in PNG, it's not that every manager was like Jim, but most of my managers really, you know, believed in me. It was a culture of people first, you know, take care of your people and the business takes care of itself. And my career just thrived. Um, I was able to really bring my purpose today every single day, whether it's, you know, as a director and building people, I became a training junkie because the, you know, and PNG really recognized me spending 50% of my time in building the organization. But it's not until my career reached the lowest point that I really realized what he was talking about. And that was 17 years later. So I ended up moving with PNG from Geneva to Moscow to then Singapore. And in 2015, PNG did a big you know, organization change, and they wanted me back in Geneva. And by that time, my husband opened his startup. It was doing really well. I really felt I need to put my money where my mouth is on dual career. So I left PNG and I took a role as chief marketing officer for another Fortune 500 company. I don't, I don't mention the name because it's irrelevant. But the company was great. The global CEO was great. The global CMO. I really loved the vision, and they brought me in to change things and. One month into the role, I got a new manager, the local uh, CEO, and Steve, it took me a week to realize that <laughs> we were coming from different worlds completely. I mean, it was just, it was almost like he was sent to me to kind of show me a shadow of everything I believed in, in, in leadership. I mean, I was, I was all about the people and the passion and creativity and it was all about the numbers and the scorecard and ROI, um, return on investment, right? And most days it was like ROI or you die. That was kind of the culture. But the specific event that I think really became a pivotal event is um, one day he summoned me into the into his office, you know, 
like you summon, you know, someone to the headmaster and, and he started giving me feedback. Now, Steve, we, I love feedback. We grew up on this concept of tough love that, you know, feedback that is direct and honest and not sugarcoating, but really comes from a position of care. There was no love that day. <laughs> it was just really humiliating, denigrating. I mean, it's almost like a blow after a blow, and I'm kind of holding it in because now I'm a C-suite woman, one of the only women on his team, and and he's kind of, you know, I'm holding it in, and then he starts insulting my team, and wow. that's when I became a lioness, right? Because I knew they worked so hard for it, and I was becoming so angry and so frustrated that a tear appeared in my eye. Now he smiled at me and he offered me a box of tissue. And Steve, I can tell you for a moment, I had this warm, fuzzy feeling, remember, in my first boss gym. But then I lifted my eyes and I noticed something weird in his smile, almost evil. Um, and he turned around that tissue box that he offered me. And on the other side of the tissue box, he prepared a handmade sticker uh, in advance, which basically read Dahlia's tissue box. Oh. He was ready and prepared and he was doing everything that he could to make me cry. And he thought it was a funny joke. Right. And I, I told this story in one forum. I, every time I tell the story and I see people go, right. That's so cruel. It was kind of almost insanely cruel. Right. Yeah. Um, I told him, I mean, this is an HR assault and he, that's kind of scared him for a moment. And then he became all serious and he's like, oh, stop being so emotional. It's just boy banter. I know you have a sense of humor. And so that kind of became, you know, a week later, he saw me arguing with someone and he was like, you know, I was talking with some of my peers and like, oh, you think Dahlia is such a tough platoon commander? You know, she has a tissue box with her name on in my office. Um, so it kind of became this um, this energy between us in a way. I'm I'm a feisty little one, right? I I'm, you know I wasn't raised to give up, and I was raised to always speak my mind. And you know he was just determined. You know he he told me once. I told him, why do you stab and turn? Isn't it enough? You know I was trying to deal with it with humor, and he said, yeah, I stab you. Oh, I you know I knock you down, but you keep coming up. And I told him, well, is that a game? And he's like. I'm kind of, aren't you enjoying it? You know, so it became like a, a crazy, later on I researched it, right? It's called the dance, you know, the dance of death where, you know, what he wanted is appreciation. What I wanted is appreciation. He was determined not to give me any appreciation. He actually told me, I'm not going to tell you what you're good at because it's a wow. waste of time. Oh my God. So it was a very challenging experience. Now I would say, People ask me, oh, why did you stay? Or, um, you know, I really loved what I was doing. I was the main breadwinner. My husband was opening his high tech. And I kept on saying to myself, you know, I'm not going to quit. I'm not a quitter. I was a competitive gymnast. Uh, so all this energy kind of, and then I also, you know, I don't tell this very often, but uh, the person that placed me in the role once, um, you know, she told me, she was asking me how it's going, and I told her a few things. I was very loyal, so I, everything was just hinted, and she said, yeah, I know, he's a really challenging boss, but only you can change him. Wow. So I had this sense of mission. Right. Uh, but I realized you can't change someone that doesn't want to change. And when it comes to really toxic environments like those, there's only one strategy, which is zero tolerance. Um, and, you know, when I left, I kind of said to myself, what a waste of human potential. I mean, this is insane. 
same person in one company I was, you know, delivering, over-delivering every year. And in the other company, same person, I was, you know, busy just making sure, you know, I don't get stabbed in the back and all the energy went on defending myself. They thought I delivered, but I know I gave them 10% of my ability. So that kind of drove me to to start studying it. And I went back to psychology. I did my master's in organizational psychology. And then, you know, I was driven to bring it back into the corporate world because um, I realized that not all companies operate from a people-first strategy. And what I grew up with was P&G was quite rare in the workplace. Actually, the, the second year, maybe that was extreme, but sadly, it's way too prevalent in the business world today. Yeah, it's more common than, than I'd like to believe. I've, I've experienced it. I've seen it. Um, so I think your, you know, w- the way you turned that terrible experience into the gift of your book is absolutely amazing because the message, you know, the dare to lead like a girl is a message of how kindness and empathy and all the qualities that people think as feminine qualities are really the best leadership qualities. And I think we've had a misperception of that over the years. Yeah, the soft skills are actually our power skills. And today more than ever, I mean, when I started researching, I mean, first of all, I I saw how prevalent it is, okay? I think, you know, we see 85% of employees are unhappy in the workplace today. One in four experience acute anxiety. Bullying at the workplace is 20% experience it directly and another 20% see it indirectly and both have very high psychological kind of cost if you like and I can tell you I, it you know I always say I I was head of women's network in PNG you know I fired a few people for misconduct and yet when it happened to me I was like a frog in boiling water thinking oh I can coach myself out of it and I think that's another thing that um you know also speaking almost almost like domestic violence and you know the analogy is crazy but it's 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 there and and women very successful very smart keep on saying oh i i i'm i'm the one that can help you know that person change and the reality is you can't coach yourself out of a toxic environment you really you know the zero tolerance needs to come from day one and from everyone involved meaning sorry, sir, but you're not going to speak to me like that, or sorry, miss, by the way, bullying is as prevalent with, with female bosses and male bosses, so I really kind of, it's, it's, it's really a matter of us putting the boundaries, but also the company putting in place, you know, um, asshole prevention. <laughs> yeah, we, I think we need <laughs> asshole prevention across the board. Across the board, because it's, it's just became insane where, you know, at some stage when we come to power roles, and it's not a nice to have. It's not a matter of, you know, oh, let's, it will help our people feel more engaged. It's not, it's, it's hardcore business results. I mean, the cost of hiring a bully, and we've seen it now with the great resignation. You know, the father and son soul um, did research for Sloan Business uh, a business review, and they basically found uh, back in Jan 2020, they were researching the reason for the great resignation, right? Because people were thinking, you know, it had to do with burnout or pay or, you know, people kind of taking on too much. And basically, they found the number one driver was toxic environments. Yeah, it is costing us. I think it costs across the board and the human cost is huge. And, and you're right, it isn't just the person that 
it's directly happening to, though that impact is extraordinary yeah. in a terrible way. It's also all the people that witness it. Yeah. And, you know, it causes people to live in fear. And fear is the least motivating emotion. Yeah. Um, it works short term. Yeah, sure. Okay, from a business results, very short term. Very short term. Okay, but then at the end of the day, it's like you don't, and and in some uh, some businesses, because most businesses today require the the creativity and the agility that that comes when your brain is in a positive, nourished state. You know, we have data on that as well. Every me measure of productivity increases when you're in a positive state. That's why when I you know, when I met Professor Tal Ben-Shachar and I started studying with him positive psychology, it was almost like everything that I intuitively believed about leadership was grounded in research. And I love that. It's proven that being positive is good for every business except being a lawyer. Okay, that's the only business where you need to have a negative, you know, view of reality to prepare for all kind of uh, situation. Every other profession our brain is 30% more productive when it's in a positive state. You know, our employees kind of deliver. I saw it on myself, right? 200% versus 10%. And um, so, so that's kind of really my, my rallying cry. It's kind of for all leaders, you know, women to, to recognize that these innate, historically feminine, there is no such thing as feminine or masculine brain right it's really more socialization has has called some traits the soft skills or the feminine skills you know empathy intuition teamwork and some skills are the positive masculine skills like logic and direction but the business world has sunk into i mean rasi sota uh, and my friend nili mabat they wrote a book called shakti leadership and they kind of bring this model around the wounded masculine that in the business world today we sank into power over people versus power with people. So dare to lead more like a girl is really a provocation to, to tilt that balance. Um, and it means for women to stop thinking that they need to behave like men in order to succeed. Thank God. Yeah, exactly, because we have. And for men, so many men, I can tell you, wrote to me when the when the TED first came out that, you know, they were called that they lead like a girl, a woman and, you know, being really proud of leading from your heart um, you know, for the sake of business results. So someone said, oh, yes, but you need all that, but you also need business results. And I'm like, they're not contradicting because you need business results. That's the ground of what we're doing. Right. If you're not performing, you shouldn't be no matter how kind and nice you are. Right. So business results is is the core. The question is, how do you go about achieving those results? And that's kind of the essence. I don't think people will follow. I mean, they will in the short term. They will if they're trapped or they think they are. They'll follow someone that's, you know, abusive. And those cultures are really prevalent in America. That sort of, you know, take no prisoners, win at all costs point of view is really ugly. Well, if you think the America, America is actually better off than many other cultures, yeah. but sadly sure. across the board, across the board. Yeah, um, I'm sure. Yeah. And, 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 you know, when we think about the leaders of the future, the Gen Z's, you know, the, the Zoomers, they, they are much less tolerant, right? Which is a great thing. That is great. So a leader that's not leading from from his heart, right? 
will not have any followers. <laughs> and that's basically mean he's a manager and not a leader. And there's a huge, huge difference between the two. That is so true. I mean, in my career, I've been been criticized for caring too much about employees and, you know, taking care of them. And I'm, I'm like, look, you know, if you want people to perform, they have to feel safe. You know, if you're constantly under threat, your performance just goes into the garbage. There's nothing, you know, no one performs when they're afraid. And I love Amy Edmondson's work. That became kind of the basis for my thesis and many things that, you know, really to achieve um, psychological safety is about speaking at your mind and operating, you know, uh, not being afraid for your kind of uh, career um, consequences. Uh, And it was found that the number one driver of high-performing organizations is actually, do you have psychological safety? That makes sense. Yeah. Creating psychological safety is is the number one kind of priority uh, of leaders in today's world. So what does it mean to create psychological safety? How do you, it's not being nice. It's not sugarcoating, right? That's sometimes the, you know, people come to me, especially when I worked in Asia, where it's very much conflict averse. And I always say conflict is an opportunity for connection when you go about it with curiosity. And that's really an important kind of uh, element there. It's not about avoiding conflict. It's not about pitching over issues. It's about being honest, but being caring. And, you know, I, I saw the criticism of, you know, uh, over honesty, it's really being I I call it caring candid. You know, you can't you can't you can't be an an asshole and call it oh, but I'm being candid. That's not what it's about. People know if you're being honest with them and telling them the truth and hiding information and not sharing it and not telling someone straight up. You know, but kindly, like here's what you could work on. Here's what I here's what we need a little more of. You know, also what's going on with you right now. You know. Yeah, people will rise up to your highest expectation or sink to your lowest. So it's how do you, you are demanding, okay, you are, you do set a really high standard, but you come from a position, okay, this is where I, I think you, you can perform. I believe in you. What do you need in order to get there? Because you're not there currently, and this is what I'm seeing, and this is why. So it's just, it suddenly puts a person in a state of, I can get there, you know, and, and, and I've been given amazing tough love feedback actually my first boss Jim is a master in that so the first the chapter on people development actually we co-authored oh really yeah I I bought him back you know 20 years kind of uh, because most of the you know lessons that I learned were then kind of proven with research but it's really around setting the bar high but knowing how to give feedback, how to pinpoint, how to really understand if it's a can't, won't, or just doesn't do it. If it's an attitude issue, if it's a skill issue, if it's an expectation alignment issue, right? And you can fix everything except attitude. So if it's really attitude, you know, and he doesn't want to do it, then he's in the wrong place. But all the other things are coachable. They sure are. And I think, you know, the, the, giving someone the tools, but also letting them know that they're supported. So they feel like, hey, I can try and I can strive to be better is a lot different than, you know, your job's on the line if you don't perform. That's that's just a self-fulfilling prophecy. So some of the things that I've seen you talk about that doesn't get talked about enough, I think, is the role of like purpose and joy 
in the workplace. And you know, those are those I think are concepts that are foreign to a lot of leaders of like, why would I be talking about joy or purpose or those kind of things with my employees? I just want them to do their jobs. So can you speak a little to that? You know, I discovered purpose very early on. So I was lucky. I was working on the Femke business. And, um, you know, I'll tell you two stories that when I, when kind of it landed for me, I mean, the first one was when I was working on the Israel business, we, we had a big competitor um, about to launch. It was Cotex. It was a big deal for us. And the best, you know, attack is defense, right? So we went and we said, okay, we did a life mapping. Where are we weaker? What do we need to do to strengthen? And we found that we're losing share among 18-year-old girls. And in Israel, what happens with 18-year-old girls? They go to the army and suddenly they get, you know, an army salary. So they kind of choose the cheaper pad. So I said, okay, I wanted to get back to them and, you know, sample them and show them the new product and the relevancy and, you know, why it's worth investing in the better product, especially now. Um, and then I wanted to convince the army to allow me to kind of sample every girl. So being an ex-platoon commander myself, I remembered, you know, the you go to have a shower and everything gets wet and one big mess. So we created these really cool wash bags with uh, individual compartments um, and we sold that and, and we went to the army and they loved the idea and we were about to go up with the campaign so basically every girl when she gets her uniform she would get the, this wash bag and I wanted to add a personal letter right and I you know I challenged the agency they didn't come up with the right thing and I found myself one one evening and I was just writing for my heart as my as an ex platoon commander, so you're sitting there on the bus. You just said goodbye to, you know, your parents, and you're worried, and you don't know anyone. And you're looking through, you know, the things that you got, and so we're here. And I talked about, you know, both about the hygiene and the importance of hygiene in the army, but I also talked about, you know, the pride that you should feel for serving as equal. And it was just a really kind of honest and open letter, and you know. I was in a state of flow, right? Meditation in action. I literally fell asleep on my desk. And in the morning, my boss came in and he's like, Dalia, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I was just writing an example for the agency. And he's like, can I read it? And he read and he started tearing. And he's like, okay, I want you to sign your real name, you know, ex-platoon commander, and we're going to ship it as is. Don't change anything. And we did. And two days after the campaign launched, Steve, our help desk was inundated with calls from moms and, and, and girls that just wanted to say thank you for being there at such an important moment. And you, you see, I'm tearing up just thinking about it because it was just, that's when I realized I'm not in the business of selling pads. I'm in the business of women empowerment. And that's kind of where I realized my purpose was about people empowerment. And I was just very lucky that when I had that, you know, revelation, I could steer my career to focus on areas where I could bring my purpose to life. Now, what is purpose? And I do a lot with companies to help employees find their purpose. And my very simple methodology, it's like I call it the simple, simplified ikigai, which is about identifying what you're good at, okay, what your passion areas are. And then how you can bring them together in what the world needs or what the company uh, needs. And in my case, I was good at, you know, people and creativity and I was passionate about women empowerment. So I can 
I could use that to kind of help my brand uh, and it did deliver the business results. So when I understood that, I kind of, you know, whether I was as a marketing director working with my team, whether it was training and coaching, and those 17 years became really years of flow. Every, every moment I was on kind of purpose. And yet in the other company, I, you know, my strengths were not only not appreciated, they were dismissed, right? I was too good with people. I was too creative. I wasn't process driven enough, right? Or so, and, and you literally feel, you know, I felt like I had to leave my heart and my art at the doorway, right? So that kind of really propelled me. I mean, the notion of purpose, and I started researching, and we know that when we look at what drives happiness, and we look, you know, there's a lot of different researchers on that, but, you know, Dan Botner did research among, you know, uh, communities that live longer than others, and they found that, you know, having a purpose, raison d'être, ikigai, whatever the, you know, idea is, but when you have a, a, a larger reason outside of yourself, you're, also, you're happier, you're healthier, you have stronger relationship because everyone wants to work with someone that kind of has an inner burning. And the interesting thing with, with purpose, it doesn't have to be that kind of one big thing. You know, I, I sometimes come to CEOs and I present, I do leadership development programs now. I basically evolved my university program and and created a corporate program and you know with the microsofts and and the big tech companies and i have sometimes ceos come to me and said oh dahlia but you know if i help them find their purpose they will all leave and go live in the himalayas right and i said if if, if any of employees have that in their purpose well let them go but i'll tell you 99 percent don't and it's about helping them find how they can bring themselves because most companies and Every time I do a workshop and, and people come to me and they say, oh, but how can I do it within what I'm doing now? And I'm like, just have a conversation with your manager. You will be surprised. And I have so many case studies. I have one that I talk about was the senior uh, lawyer who was working in, I can tell the company, it was the non, okay? And she, through work with me on finding her purpose, realized that her passion was green energy. And she came to me and she said, Dali, I need to leave. I'm, you know, I want to work for an NGO. I want to do kind of green energy. And I'm like, wait, before you leave, I mean, Danone is an amazing company. It's a huge company. Did you have a discussion with your line manager about, you know, what you love doing? And she's like, no, I mean, it's useless. I mean, what does being a lawyer have to do with? And I said, I will have a discussion. And she called me two hours after. She's like, you wouldn't believe it. You know, I spoke with my manager and she told me they just decided on a global level that they want to do a big green energy project and they were looking for a team leader and she became the team leader. And, wow. they, you know, it's just amazing. The universe aligns with a made up mind. So the first thing that I say is I work, you know, and every time I do a leadership development program, I don't allow the CEO to take the program without a find your why kind of workshop because it helps people, I mean, A, realize the, the methodology that I use that I develop based on different kind of things, Simon Sinek and a lot of other things I've been through, but I go through storytelling and drawing of your life map and showing you that there's a red thread. All your highs and low lead you. 
And when you're just able to see, and I kind of, when I do it and I did it on myself, right? At the end of the day, my, my biggest pain, you know, evolved into being my purpose, right? I don't want unhappy, you know, corporate slaves and no one feeling like a corporate slave. And so I kind of made it my purpose to work with organizations to bring back uh, purpose and joy. So purpose is kind of, you know, the first element. But when we talk about joy or the science of happiness, you know, studying with, with Tal, you know, I developed what I call my 5P. Yeah, I've read and listened to you talk about your 5P model. And, you know, I don't like saying that I invented it because, you know, different people call it in different names, but psychologists, philosophers all agree that it takes mind, body, and soul to be happy. Yeah. And Helen Keller says the only definition of happiness is wholeness. So the model, and sometimes I come and I talk about well-being in a company, and they're like, oh, Dale, yes, we're doing well-being. We teach yoga. Um, and I'm a yoga teacher, okay? I'm a huge believer in yoga because it's one of the dimensions and it's only one of the dimension and you really need to be building all dimensions to be happy. So those dimensions, I call them, I mean, number one is purpose. We talked about it. That's the core of everything we do. The second is perspective, which is all the mental health. It's basically the growth mindset that you have, how you deal with setbacks, you know, understanding this notion of post-traumatic growth, okay? Everyone heard of post-traumatic stress disorder, but actually post-traumatic growth is three times more likely to happen. And that's really when you not only bounce back, so everyone's talking resilience. Resilience is bouncing back to where you were before. Post-traumatic growth is actually when you grow from your hardships. When you sit and you analyze and you say, okay, what is my lesson Okay, well, what do I want to do with that? So, you know, I do with companies something that I call the shit show or in a nicer language, my fabulous failures, where I bring in the three most senior leaders and they talk about their failures because we talked about psychological safety, right? And how important it is for organization. Well, the number one driver of psychological uh, safety is leaders admitting their mistakes. Yeah, vulnerability. Their vulnerability and, you know, being willing to fail forward, right? And, and and to encourage that mindset of, yeah, you'll do a lot of things, not all of them would be successful and that's okay. You know, key is what you learn from it. So that's kind of the, the second uh, module. The third is the yoga, okay? Which is the physical wellness, which is the importance of taking care of what we eat, our sleep, really realizing that today it's not about managing time. It's really about managing energy. And how are you being smart about managing your energy? And then the fourth B is people, which we just take for granted. But we know, you know, from research that the number one driver of happiness is people. So Harvard did this 75-year-long research to understand the secret of happiness. Martin Seligman, you know, and Mikai Chikmikai did this research. And they found that it's really the quality of your relationship. And the same works for the workplace. So Gallup replicated and they found the number one driver of happiness is do you have a best friend at work and number two is do you have friends at work and when it came out CEOs were like what is this stupid question right and every <laughs> right. time they took the question out of the Q12 they call it right yeah, they right. found you know that was the key driver so as a leader how do you invest in getting to know your people as human beings how do you invest in facilitating those relationships? I mean, I, I just wrote about it with Jim. We would go rollerblading. 
you know, over lunchtime and there's things that you could do. And even when you work remotely to get to know each other, to ask, yeah. okay, how are you feeling today? What is going on in your household with your children coming in? Say hi, how old are they? Get to, you know, get interested in, in the people that you work with and really care. You know, um, my first boss actually realized that what's really uh, troubling me is that my husband didn't find a job. So he created, you know, a job for him for six months. He was head of the fitness center just until he got settled in and, you know, finished his studies and, you know, opened his own company. But these things are really critical. So that's the people. And the fifth one is positivity. And it's kind of the, the joy. And this is all about, you know, positivity is not about being happy, happy all the time. That's a big mistake. It's about being emotionally brave. It's about recognizing all emotions, you know, are valid. It's a sign of being human. I like uh, Tal Ben Shachar always says, who doesn't have negative emotions? Only psychopaths or dead people. So if you're sad, <laughs> exactly. that's great news. And it's true. So how do you as a leader make room for these emotions that it's okay not to feel okay? And if you're grieving what's going on and giving you space for it, we always say, and, and this is a difference between men and women, it's actually proven with PET scans, and I'm going to share this with you, I think you would appreciate that, that women and men both have, you know, same level of empathy, but women sit with it slightly lower than men, and men very quickly, another area of the brain lights up, which is involved with problem solving. So, and when I say it, you know, I always say to men, stop trying to fix her, just listen to her. <laughs> Yeah. That's why men come up with a solution three words into so listening to someone. Exactly. Yeah, that's so maddening. Just be quiet. Uh, empathy is really seeing the world from the other person's perspective. Yeah. So just, you know, silent and listen have the same word, uh, letters. Did you realize that? Oh, wow. Silent yeah, you're right. And listen. Yeah. You know? Oh, my gosh. So shut up. <laughs> yeah, shut up and just listen. Yeah, I think your style and getting to talk to you today, you are without question, one of the most empathic people I think I've ever talked to. Like, <laughs> I, I, you saw how many times I teared up. Yeah, I, you know, it's it's a beautiful thing. And I think you're, you have a huge heart. And I think leading with your heart is so important. So the story you told about the letter to, you know, the people who are serving and, and the women and connecting with them on such a personal level, that is the, that's the cornerstone of not only great marketing, but being a great person. You know, it was vulnerable and it was real. And I can tell you something because the podcast is about brand stories. Yeah. And I think, too, you know, one of the things was that disturbed me a little bit in my last role as CMO, that it was all about the science. There is, of course, a science to marketing. Yeah, of course there is. But there's a whole art there. And yeah. I think, you know, the brand, same as I do with people, what's your heritage? What's the story? Yeah. What's your life benefit? How is your brand changing lives? And, you know, that's really something that P&G kind of almost every brand we were encouraged to think about how we change in life and how can you bring. And that makes that, you know, when you speak from the heart, you reach hearts. And that's how people make decision, brand decisions as well. Do you connect with the brand? And then you rationalize with a thousand reasons to believe, right? But are you, you know, do you know what your brand at its core is all about, you know, and how are you changing, you know, your consumer's life. So Yeah, and I think it's amazing how few people realize how how much a brand is like a person. You know, the way you behave and the way you treat others is how people view you. And everyone buys everything emotionally. So we are 
uh, we are emotional beings. So I think, you know, understanding that when you're, when you're operating in the world of business is, you know, people seem, so many people think everything is logical and it's not, it's very emotional. And then we use logic to define our, and defend our decisions. And, you know, you're, I think your book, and I've seen your TED talk, that's where I first discovered you and have been following along with your brilliant thinking and speaking for, for quite a while now. And I think your book, if anyone, you know, the time I've gotten with you today has just been extraordinary. And I think if anyone um, wants to know more about the way you think and what you're offering all of us, just please buy this book. Because so far what I've read, it's extraordinary. So thank you so much for writing it. Thank you so much. And you know, I'll, 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 I think the one interesting, I mean, it's really, it touches, it's like I put a piece of the, my heart out there and, you know, a guy called me from, from Australia who just saw the TED Talk and he's like, Daddy, I saw your TED Talk. I realize I'm an asshole. What can I do? <laughs> right. I need to work on this. Wow. So whether it's kind of for women, you know, learning to kind of bring themselves, whether it's for men, whether it's for brand building, there's a lot of stories on kind of brand there building is. that we didn't get to talk now. But really, when you speak from the heart, you get better results for, you know, in terms of productivity, but also in terms of uh, brands. So... I'm super excited to actually be in here today in a brand story context. Yeah, I mean, your story, you know, your personal brand is just extraordinary. And your story is so powerful that I think anyone can learn from your story, but brands can learn from your story. Because what you've been through, the way you talk about things, you know, you, you could substitute the word brand in your book here and there, and it would still be a great lesson for how brands should behave and treat people. So, you know, I've been a storyteller my whole life. And that's, you know, as far as purpose goes, I was directing plays in my front yard when I was nine years old. And I've always just loved people's stories. So I started this podcast just for exactly this conversation, just to be able to sit with you for a little while and hear your story, because it, it's just so genuine and so powerful. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Steve. That is so kind of you. And it's really, you know, if if this book kind of makes that little change that we so much need, you know, in employees being just slightly more purpose-driven and happy. And I, you know, what made me pivot, and I'll just finish with that, is when I was teaching at the university and one of my students stood up and I did a find your why. And he was like all emotional. It's like, thank you, prof. I now know what my purpose is, but I know I need to be a brand you know, brand slave for a few, a corporate slave for a few more years, and then I'll do what I love. And I'm like this, this notion of the, the younger generation. I mean, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't need to be that way. So find what you are good at, find what you love doing, find how you can use your brand voice to better the world. I mean, there's so many more stories about India that you can read in some of the materials and the chapter there, but every brand has an opportunity to change life. So what are you going to do about it? Yeah, that's a wonderful message. And I, we are going to uh, talk about your book a great deal and put a link to it on your landing page and celebrate it because I think people have so much to learn from it. And I think it's such a timely message today. I think we all need to be thinking about that because it's about integrating our purpose into what we actually do, not waiting 
until we're climbing a mountain somewhere and then that's our purpose. We have to do it today as part of our everyday lives. So thank you for being such a motivator and such a, a wonderfully generous person. I'm gonna show your book one more time because I want everyone to go get a copy. <laughs> and uh, I, I really, I can't tell you how much I love this conversation. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Thank you and looking forward to see the ripples. Wanna hear more inspiring stories? Subscribe on your preferred podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what we're doing, please rate, review, and share. It's the best way to support us. Thank you for listening to Brand Story.